Welcome back to the Georgia 2024 show. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Quinn. Welcome, Bill. Good afternoon, Todd. How are you? Um, well, so we have a special today. It's two hours long, and we're doing this because the world is spinning out of control. And guess what? It all lands back in Georgia, even if it's happening in Ukraine or Israel. And we wanted to spend some time really tying all this together for our viewers so that you understand what's happening globally and, and not just reacting to things that are happening in Georgia. We want to welcome our syndicated networks of the Conservative Daily Network out in Denver with Joe Oltman and his group, and also the Caravan to Midnight with their 8 million listeners. Thank you for listening to the Georgia 2024 show, brought to you by the Georgia Record at georgiarecord.com. As I mentioned, cdm.press is our mothership network. We are global, uh, literally global, and you're going to see a lot of global broadcast and information and reporting over the next few weeks. Uh, we'll just let you wait and see what's coming, but I think you'll enjoy it and be, maybe not enjoy it, but you'll be informed for sure more than most. And we wanted to also highlight that we have 13 digital properties, digital properties. We're in Eastern Europe with Sarism.com. We have a site in Israel. We are in the Balkans with the Balkan.press. In the U.S., we have CDM.press, which everything flows into all over the world. We have six papers down at the state level, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, the Manhattan, the Easton Gazette in Maryland, and also the Colorado Free Press. The Montana Sentinel is coming online. We also have a military channel, armedforces.press, and our Hispanic, CDM Espanol, which is going to be growing, and you'll see more and more of that. You've seen our head of that, Willie Laura, come on several times. With all of that global focus, uh, we really can bring you things um, and, and tie it all together more than really anyone out there right now. And you know it'll be true. Uh, that's our hallmark. We have high credibility. We need to get bigger, but we have high credibility. But this is all very expensive. So what we need, we need to ask you some favors today. We need you to help spread the word. And you can do that by liking our Rumble channel, subscribing to our Rumble channel, CDM1. We are putting out a lot of video content these days from war stories to Ukraine sit rep to the Middle East to uh, the war in the Pacific um, information operation my show this show Christine Dolan just had a fabulous show on the globalist in plain sight with people talking about the World Health Organization and what they're trying to do censorship wise so sign up for our rumble sign up for our Twitter channels I mean go to you can go to my channel altoddwood.com or you can go to CDM look for that and sign up for that help spread the word twitter is being very impactful now uh sign up for our newsletters we send them out uh every night on cdm once a week or so on the georgia record sign up for our no ad subscriptions this is all extremely expensive and we need to grow our revenue that we can count on every month subscription way revenue is a way to do that we charge 10 bucks a month and you get access to all of our channels all over the world with no advertisements people love it i hear it all the time thank you for no pop-ups etc etc so you get all of the state papers the military international with no ads uh, we have an annual rate for that if you want to sign up for that we've been attacked mercilessly lately bill and i have been struggling to keep the georgia record online uh, they haven't got to us yet uh, we had a few hours down earlier this week where they wiped out some stuff on our back end but we rebounded back quickly uh we got a full show today uh bill you want to run through the guest list sure so we're going to start off with uh laura loomer laura has been on fire this past couple of weeks and really for months now um and she's going to cover what she sees going on with the conflicts around the world 
Um, we're going to hear from David Cross on some of the, the uh, dynamics in the financial world and also election integrity in Georgia. Uh, we'll hear from Laura Logan, uh, who will talk about the MEK and uh, the Iranian resistance. And I know that's one of your uh, areas especially as well, Todd. And then we're going to move to uh, Chris Gleason, who will fill us in on the latest with the Justice Society. And then uh, probably some other dialogue on some of the other strange dynamics and movement within Georgia and across the country. So full show, as you said. Yeah, two hours long today. And this is very turbulent times geopolitically, but it's also very turbulent times in the financial markets. And you need an advisor you can trust, someone who understands and is not feeding you the narrative that the Matrix wants you to hear. David Cross is that guy. He's going to come on a little later, but uh, we're going to run a quick ad for him because you really need somebody you can trust. If you have a portfolio that's even smaller or even you know much bigger, uh, you need an advisor you can trust, and, and David is the guy. So let me run this ad. This is a special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. Yes, please give David a call, free consultation, talk about your portfolio, and, and get yourself in right hands that you can, that you can trust. It's really important uh, on Wall Street because it's a very corrupt place. So having somebody who's not going to blow smoke, you know, up your, you know, what is, is really important. Uh, Bill, why don't you bring in our first guest, uh, Laura, we spoke to earlier. Okay, here comes Laura Loomer. Laura, thanks for coming on the Georgia 2024 show. As I were talking before this, uh, we've been in Ukraine for a while and I saw your report on Alex Soros and Buttigieg and Zelensky and... Uh, that got, caught my eye. So tell us what you've dug up over there on that. Yeah. So uh, as you know, uh, we're nearing the November 17th deadline uh, for uh, Congress to decide whether or not they're going to send more aid to Ukraine, right, as part of this uh, congressional budget deadline after this 45-day, uh, what was it, continued resolution when the Republicans under Kevin McCarthy <laughs> didn't have the courage to actually shut our government down. And so they said, oh, no, no, we just can't bring ourselves to not give Ukraine billions of more dollars of American taxpayer money. So uh, we're not not going to shut the government down. We're just going to have a continued resolution and table this topic, and then uh, we'll we'll decide in a couple months from now. Well, that time has now uh, uh, you know arrived, and Kevin McCarthy has since uh, been removed as Speaker of the House uh, due to this motion to vacate because of the fact that uh, he wanted to send more money to Ukraine. And now we have a Speaker of the House named Mike Johnson, who also seems to be more uh, concerned with sending money to Ukraine as opposed to dealing with the needs and the interests of the American people. And so you see that on his first day on the job, uh, Mike Johnson, when asked uh, by the media, if they were going to send more money to Ukraine, because that's, of course, uh, you know, the, the big te litmus test here is whether or not we have a real MAGA America first mem uh, member of Congress, uh, who's a now Speaker of the House. And uh, he said, yeah, we're going to send more money to Ukraine. So obviously, this is uh, probably the most you know, contested issue right now in Congress. And so what do you have? You have uh, Alex Soros, the son of George Soros, who recently took over as chair of the Open Societies Foundation since his father is 95 and <laughs> looks like the Crypt Keeper. And 
they uh, they have their home base in uh, Kiev in Ukraine. And so uh, you what you have is Alex Soros on November 7th of this week traveling to Ukraine and announcing I'm home and uh, look, we're opening new projects. Uh, they issue a press release, uh, George Soros and Alex. He literally Soros said do. I'm home, right? <laughs> literally said I'm home. No, that's not me editorializing or being, you know, sarcastic or yeah, facetious. Yeah. His tweet literally said I'm back home and it had a photo of him with a location marker in mm -hmm. Kiev uh, with the Open Society's uh, banner in the background. So why does this matter? Well, because uh, the same day that he said, I'm home, he pictured, he had photos of himself posted on Twitter with uh, Zelensky and uh, this other guy who, um, who works as basically the head of Zelensky's office as the president in, in Ukraine. And so why does this matter? Because, <laughs> They're posting from their own Twitter accounts. So great to meet up with our friend Alex Soros to talk about uh, the defense, the continued defense efforts for Ukraine. Why is the son of George Soros helping to negotiate matters of defense for Ukraine amid the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war? And why is it that this is happening right before, okay? right before, eight days before this new deadline uh, regarding funding for Ukraine in Congress? Well, okay. Seems a little suspect that Soros would be making the announcement for these new projects for Open Society's foundation the same day that his son is meeting with Ukraine that's receiving billions of dollars. Why does this matter? Well, because, you know, Open Society's foundation has bank accounts. They have they have financial uh, institutions, obviously, where their funds low and you have an open admission of collaboration between uh, Zelensky and individuals within Zelensky's cabinet and the office of the president in Ukraine. And then simultaneously, the same exact day that Zelensky was meeting with Alex Soros and all of these uh, Ukrainian officials, who arrives in Ukraine to meet with Zelensky as well? Well, Pete Buttigieg. And the media reported on Pete Buttigieg uh, meeting with Zelensky. But what they didn't tell people and what I exclusively reported is that he also privately and secretly met with Alex Soros while he was there visiting Zelensky. And so why is it that the transportation secretary is going to Ukraine? I mean, I don't understand. Like the guy can't even fix potholes and get the airplanes running on, on time here at our airports here in America. And he's going to Ukraine. He's, he's not with the Department of Defense. What exactly is Pete Buttigieg doing in Ukraine? And why is he having secret meetings with Alex Soros and Zelensky the same day that Soros announces their new political initiatives in Ukraine? It seems like what's happening is they're gearing up to get funding from Congress, knowing that Mike Johnson is going to cave on this matter. OK, and then what's going to happen is billions of dollars are going to be sent to Ukraine. And then somehow this money is going to end up in the slush fund and the piggy bank of Soros. And then that money is going to be funneled back into uh, dark money operations, which we know that Soros is uh, one of the biggest dark money funders of progressive and Democrat <laughs> efforts in America ahead of the 2024 presidential election. I just exposed this last week with my investigation into crew out of Colorado. You know, the Citizens for Responsible Ethics uh, in Washington, the organization that filed the lawsuit to get Trump off the ballot in Colorado. And yet, what do we what do we have? We don't have House Republicans calling for investigations into this. There's no investigation into the way that dark money's flowing, and they don't seem to want to crack down on 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 sending money to Ukraine, even though now we have evidence that these officials are meeting with each other on the same day. And we know that Soros and his son are the largest Democrat donors. OK, the largest donors in the Democrat Party. So. 
So you you bring up a lot, which is uh, your insight is is really spot on. So Soros, our audience may not know, but Soros controls Ukraine. I mean, he funds he runs the NGOs, which they take kids out of college, they put them in the NGOs, they train them up, and then they put them in the government in certain positions, and then they do what he wants in the government. And Alex Soros is you're right taking over this uh, this operation, and he's been in basically running foreign policy in the Balkans. He has taken now. over. Yeah, yeah he yeah. actually has taken over. And uh, obviously, like Soros himself is more of, you know, the frontward facing man. And so people think, oh, George Soros. But what they need to understand is they need to start familiarizing themselves with Alexander Soros as well, who mm -hmm. is, you know, much younger uh, and very politically involved. So it's not just going to stop when George Soros dies someday. Like he's a 95 year old man. He's going to die eventually, you know. <laughs> in the next five years, probably. I, I don't know. Most people don't live over a hundred and I'm not wishing, I'm not wishing death on anyone. I'm just saying the reality is he's going to die soon. And so he's getting his ducks in a row. He needs to have an heir, uh, a parent. He needs to have a successor so that they can continue their global uh, efforts of funneling dark money into color revolution, uh, regime changing operations, uh, both domestically here in the United States and abroad in places like uh, Eastern Europe, Africa, where George Soros is also playing the Middle East. I mean, we see that a lot of the money right now that's being used to support Palestinian NGOs and a lot of these anti-Israel movements are coming from groups that receive funding from Soros. And so yeah. he really is a giant destabilizer of of, of world peace, of, of, of true democratic governments. He likes to pretend like he's there to try to facilitate democracy. But if you have a singular donor that is basically responsible for regime change, and we know that George Soros has connections with the CIA and that uh, he worked openly with the CIA uh, in the 1980s when the CIA was using Nazis to fight the Russians, uh, we know that that Soros is working with these nefarious factors on the radical left, right, open communists, uh, neo-Nazis, and now uh, jihadist Islamic terrorists to create uh instability around the world and to keep Donald Trump out of the White House in 2024. It's a slush fund. So all of us have been working in various parts of this smurfing operation that we found nationwide where small contributions on basically debit cards are getting funded somehow and then using identity theft to to place a lot of money in these different campaigns. That may be the kind of the vehicle because the money goes to Ukraine and then somehow it's funded back into these cards at least to fund a lot of the local races where they've had a big impact so uh, anyway we're working on that so do you have any information on that how the money's getting back well, it would to make US? sense it would make sense why so many of these progressive candidates are able to have you know very large uh low dollar uh grassroots uh donations through the act blue platform and we know that act blue uh you know has associations with arabella advisors and arabella advisors is the group that uh, kind of oversees right uh the distribution and the man the the managing of the funds for a lot of these different progressive groups that receive uh funding from the top down and of course, uh, Soros is a big contributor. So um, it would it would explain it. And you have a lot of these groups, these Democrat progressive organizations that are pretending to be 501c3s. They're doing fundraising on the Act Blue fundraising platform. And yet they're not charities. They're not philanthropies. They're actually abusing their IRS uh, C3 status so that they can then <laughs> become political operatives and use those funds to pay political operatives. And so uh, we're, we're seeing that now. And obviously, like, 
organizations abroad aren't going to have the same financial regulations or mm -hmm. election regulations as those here in the United States. And so I, I predict that that's what we're going to see. If more money gets earmarked for Ukraine, it will be sent to Ukraine. Ukraine has clearly announced that they're engaged in partnerships with the Open Society Foundation because they openly said it. These are representatives from Zelensky's office, okay, chief officials, the president's office in Ukraine, announcing their partnership with Alexander Soros. And the timing of this is unbelievable. I mean, just six days ago, uh, Alexander Soros was photographed with Obama. So six days later, right, he's with Obama, then he's in Ukraine with Zelensky, and then Pete Buttigieg goes over there, and they can't send Hunter, right? They can't send Joe because, <laughs> oh, well, you know, majority of Americans, right, they understand that the Biden family has controversy in Ukraine, and uh, what's that going to look like, right? Joe Biden meeting with Zelensky, the base, uh, the Democrat base is already pissed off with Joe Biden, and they, they call him Genocide Joe because he hasn't been able to resolve the conflict in Ukraine, and uh, now we have this conflict with Israel. And so he is a wartime president, right? Uh, I don't even like calling him president because he's illegitimate, uh, but that's going to be his legacy. And unfortunately, now that Zoomers now make up majority of uh, the voting bloc, as of, as of 2024, Zoomers will officially surpass Boomers as the largest voting bloc in America. Um, Joe Biden's going to have some issues. He's going to have some issues. And so what do they do? They send the transportation secretary. They send Pete Buttigieg because, yeah. Bill? No one's going to find out. No one's going to find out. No one's going <laughs> to care. But we found out. Well, it's interesting. You, you bring up money and money is so so often the, the root of a lot of this stuff. What do you think about the timing of, uh, you know, the House uh, saying fine to 300 million for a new FBI headquarters uh, right. investment on top of, you know, everybody else is looking at 33 trillion going, holy mackerel, how do we get out from under this? And yet they seem willy nilly well, with our with our budget. <laughs> they want three hundred million dollars so that they can make a new FBI headquarter that, larger than the Pentagon. Why does the FBI need to be larger than the Pentagon? I mean, that's pretty scary when we know what the FBI has been doing. <laughs> they want to expand themselves. There were 70 Republicans this Wednesday that voted the day of the uh, third GOP presidential debate and President yep. Trump's rally, hoping that everybody was just going to be, you know, completely distracted by Trump's rally and the drama surrounding the stupid GOP primary debate, that they were like, okay, we're, no one's going to realize, you guys, no one's going to recognize this, no one's going to be paying attention because everyone's going to be distracted with the debate. So what are we going to do? We're going to vote in favor of this. So 70 House Republicans voted in support of giving $300 million. They voted against an amendment that was brought to the floor of the House to remove uh, the $300 million in funding uh, so that the FBI could expand the size of the Pentagon. That's $300 million that is now going to go towards increased weaponization of government in an election year. Okay, we're looking at this 2024 budget that's coming up here. Okay, so they're going to have all this money, all this space to weaponize themselves. That's $300 million that otherwise could have been used to you know, I don't know, bolster the southern border. We're being invaded by all of these uh, actual terrorists while the FBI wants to expand and call Trump supporters terrorists. We have, oh yeah, I don't know, Hamas and Hezbollah, ISIS terror cells as confirmed in these secret bulletins that are getting leaked out from the State Department and Homeland yep. Security. I, I just don't understand like how they can justify or reconcile uh, what's going on in our country today and then saying, oh, you know, we have a problem with weaponized government, but hey, here's 300 million more dollars so that you can continue your uh, regime of terror against MAGA. Well, you mentioned it was 70, uh, 70 Republicans, at least two of them were from Georgia, Rich McCormick and 
and Drew Ferguson. And it's like, didn't we just didn't we just have this debate with you guys a few months ago? I mean, we need to we need to start doing our math before we spend more. Right. Um, and we need yeah. to end if we're going to spend to your point, it has to be spent on the right things, things that solve problems back here. So the uh, in, in Russia, the FSB headquarters is huge and it's kind of a we're seeing a similar situation where they become kind of their own like state entity that that fights for control against other state entities. So there's an ex this has happened before. But talk to us about Israel. What, what are your thoughts on what's going on in the Middle East? Well, it's obviously, you know, awful what's happening right now with these attacks by Hamas and Hezbollah. We know that it's uh, Iran financing this, training these uh, these terrorists because of reports that have come out that showed that, you know, IRGC terrorists in Iran trained, okay, over 500 Hamas and Hezbollah terrorists to carry out these attacks. But it goes back to what I'm saying. This is a terrorism issue. This is an issue of national security. And the United States government shares intelligence with Israel when it comes to combating Hamas and Hezbollah. And so this is a massive intel failure on behalf of the US government and Israel. But then when you look at who's in charge of our intel, the siphoning of intel and the you know priori prioritization of intel at the National Security Council, it's a Muslim Palestinian jihadist by the name of Maher Batar. And I exposed this over two years ago when Joe Biden first assumed power and nobody wanted to listen. But what do you think is going to happen when you have a Muslim in charge of you know deciphering our intel in our country? Of course, they're going to not think that Hamas and Hezbollah are terror threats. And of course, they're going to not want to alert Israel. Israel, they're not going to want to alert our U.S. government officials about this growing threat and the intel they receive because this guy was a member of SJP. OK, he openly sympathized with Hamas and Hezbollah while he was a student at Georgetown. And so, you know, in a sense, right, uh, this 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 conflict was created by the United States of America. And maybe that's controversial to say. But when you have people like Robert Malley, who's, you know, Joe Biden's handpicked uh, Iran envoy and you have Maher Batar literally, you know, working with Islamic terrorists and, and having spirings in Washington, D.C. with Iranians that are chanting death to America and death to Israel, death to Jews. Uh, it's really treasonous. And I just don't understand why these people aren't arrested. I don't understand why the House Republicans are not uh, calling for the immediate arrest of Robert Malley, why they're not calling for the immediate arrest of Maher Batar, and why not why their names are not household names in every single American household right now. I don't even think the American people know what I'm talking about. Like most people don't even know what I'm talking about when you say, oh yeah, did you know that Joe Biden <laughs> appointed this guy, um, you know, to be the Iran envoy and he basically was running aspiring with Islamic terrorists in Washington, DC. You don't even hear the media talking about this. And so how are people supposed to understand this conflict and how we got to this point? And how are they supposed to understand the intelligence failure when nobody wants to talk about the fact that Joe Biden appointed a jihadist to oversee intel in the United States government? I was going to ask you that. Do you think it was an intelligence failure or absolutely? Yeah. I think it was an intentional intelligence failure too. That I'll go as far as saying yeah. that. that I think we question. were sabotaged by Islamic infiltrators in our government, specifically Maher Batar. Mm -hmm. 
So you don't think you don't think the Netanyahu government bears responsibility or do you? Well, like I said before, the United States government shares intel with with Israel. We share mm -hmm. we share intelligence with Israel's intelligence units as well mm -hmm. when it comes to combating Hamas and Hezbollah, because we have interests as well in combating Hamas and Hezbollah. You know, Hamas and Hezbollah have units. They have ter active terror cells in America. They have for a very long time. And they also have active terror cells in Venezuela and they're coming across the border. Okay, they're coming through the Darien Gap. They're coming through uh, the wide open uh, U.S. southern border. Uh, border Patrol has identified Hamas and Hezbollah operatives. They've identified Iranian nationals as well <laughs> trying to come across. It's been well documented for years that Hamas has been training the cartels, the Mexican cartels, how to dig tunnels because they have these very sophisticated uh, tunnels. They've worked with the Taliban. I mean, the Mexican drug cartels worked with um, the Taliban in terms of uh, in terms of uh, uh, the opium, uh, the the opium drug trade, okay, with with the poppy plants from Afghanistan. This has all been documented for a long time, but nobody wants to talk about it. We haven't been able to talk about it because you know our first Muslim president, Barack Hussein Obama, decided that it was more important to police everybody's speech by saying things like, "You're not allowed to identify a real threat as Islamic terrorism. You have to call it workplace violence." You know, <laughs> that's what happens when you allow yourself to be infiltrated by Islamists from the top down. And so people have not been able to uh, properly identify or even act on uh, these threats upon identifying them uh, because our intelligence agencies are now uh, hiring based off of affirmative action quotas, you know, our, uh, our, our law enforcement agencies are being told that white Christian MAGA supporters are the bigger burger terrorists. And, uh, we're being told that, uh, actual Islamic terrorists are, uh, what is it? Austere religious scholars. So how are people supposed to know? How are the American people supposed to know what's going on and really understand this conflict when you don't even get adequate real information about it? Bill, last question. Yeah, so information's a uh, the theme, I think. So, does it, did it strike you as unusual that we heard so much constantly about Ukraine, and then as soon as Israel started, all of a sudden you heard almost nothing about Ukraine until, well. <laughs> to your point, your your recent reporting on what's going on with Soros, but it it almost went dark. It was like, what happened? Did it did it get solved? And all of a sudden, Israel well, what we saw, what we saw is that uh, you have Hamas terrorists wearing GoPro cameras filming themselves committing these atrocities, and they're literally using grenades and weapons and rockets from Ukraine. I mean, you hear these, I don't know if you saw the videos yourself, but uh, there were videos yeah. that were being circulated online on the Hamas Telegram channels where they were saying, oh, thank you so much, America. Like this conflict that you're funding in Ukraine has now resulted in us being able to get weapons against Israel. So they're getting the weapons from the Ukrainians, okay? And again, who does it all tie into? It ties into Soros, okay? The guy likes to call himself a Jew. He's really a Nazi. There are Nazi Jews. They're called Kappas, okay? They were collaborators. They're people that sold their own people out so that they didn't get the gas chamber and didn't get killed. And that's what Soros is. He's a Nazi Jew. That's what Zelensky is. He's a Nazi Jew, okay? He likes to say he's a Jew so that he can, you know, cry victim when Vladimir Putin calls him out and says that we're trying to denazify uh, Ukraine. But Zelensky is a Nazi, okay? George Soros is a Nazi, and this is seen in the way that they have utilized U.S. aid, and they have actually funded Nazi militias called the Azov Battalion uh, to carry out their attacks. 
I already proved through my reporting here in America that they're recruiting actual Nazi white supremacists here in America who have been arrested on charges of of white supremacist terror, like not made up charges of white supremacist terror, like actual hardcore Nazis with swastikas on their on their faces tattooed, (laughs) getting then flipped to be FBI, CIA assets and going overseas to Ukraine by their own admission to fight with Azov Battalion. So the United States government is not even not only funding Nazism, okay, by continuing to send aid to Ukraine, but they're also exporting Nazis, homegrown Nazis that are then being used to train Nazis to carry out acts of violence and, um, you know, kill Russians and and um, carry out war crimes. Really, is what we're seeing. So Christia Freeland up in Canada works for Trudeau's a, a Ukrainian Nazi as well, just for the record. We've done a lot of reporting on that. Laura, yeah. thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, all this stuff ties into the elections, right? And uh, don't be surprised to see a lot of the Soros money start flying into Georgia again, because just last week, polls show that Trump is now surpassing Biden by five points in places like Arizona, right. Georgia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nevada. So... You know, people need to understand it all ties back to Soros. And you have to ask yourself, where's the GOP oversight committee? Where's the Speaker of the House? I mean, they know this. They have to know. If I Mm -hmm. can figure this stuff out as an independent journalist with no major funding from, you know, any of these mainstream media organizations, and I do it on my phone and my laptop, why is it that uh, members of Congress that have multi-million dollar budgets and have a team of staff, like I don't even have a personal assistant, okay? I'm so tired. I do so much work on a daily basis and I'm trying to get this information out, you cannot tell me that I'm the only person with this information. I just refuse to believe it. I don't understand what our members of Congress and their staff are doing all day. Why does it take an independent journalist to break stories like this? Doesn't anybody else know what Pete Buttigieg and the Biden administration is doing with Soros and his family in Ukraine? Could, I mean, I'm, could, I'm happy to do the work. Do, could be I'm something happy to do, to do the, the work, but it's just crazy, isn't it? Like, isn't it just crazy yeah, that yeah. that it's people like you and people like me and others that aren't even receiving funding for the work that we're doing, and yet we have agencies that receive multi-billion-dollar budgets to do this, and they're not doing anything it it just goes to show you the enormous amount of incompetence and financial waste in america it also shows when you make a commitment you get things done people notice i saw i saw don jr i believe earlier today talking about how much he'd kind of like to see you and uh in a role with uh, with them as you go forward. So yeah, you we'll know, see. he said that I should be press secretary. I would uh, gladly accept, right? Uh, but but listen, it's just I, I want people to to keep that in mind as well because you have to cut your cable subscription and start supporting independent journalists. Because okay. why is it? I mean, why is it that from from the comfort of my bed and my gym clothes, I can break a story about you know Judge Engeron's wife or the transportation secretary? I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that it's everyday Americans and people that are taking matters into their own hands now, breaking these stories because our government is so corrupt, the media is so compromised, and just you know, all of these government agencies that are supposed to be protecting America and protecting our national security and trying to de-escalate war, they're, they're actually endangering people on a daily basis and making an effort to cut off the flow of information so that people don't get this. And it's just, that's why I do what I do, because I feel like, you know, it's officially less than one year to the 2024 election. People need to develop a sense of urgency. It's just it's pattern recognition and i just hope that mike johnson doesn't cave i think that he probably will unfortunately but the house republicans have got to say no more money to ukraine and they need to immediately open investigations into the soros open societies foundation and arabella advisors 
Laura, thanks so much. We'll have you yeah. back on. Take Thank care. You. Bye. Thank you. Powerful interview. Um, we go ahead, Bill. Were you going to say something? I was just going to note that it, it's just amazing to me that Laura has um, a thumb on all these different issues and can cite so much uh, of what's going on with with certainty and with uh, confidence. It's uh, it's amazing. She's got, uh, as she says, you know, she can report on this stuff. Uh, doesn't get a lot of help, but boy, she's got a lot of lot of uh, knowledge going on. So obviously, th there's a lot going on behind the scenes, and our uh, psychotic overlords have plans for us. So how are you going to handle that? I think it's time for you, Daddy, and you, Grandpa, to get serious uh, about protecting your family. And the 15-minute cities are coming. The CBDC, Central Bank Div Digital Currencies, are coming so that you won't be able to buy medicine or food if they don't want you to. So again, how are you going to protect your family? The time is now. You don't have time when there's no time. Uh, as they say on Wall Street, interest rates are low until they're not. Well, you have time until you don't. So go to twc.health forward slash CDM. Check out their emergency medical kit. It's got everything you will need in a medical emergency. Not everything, but just about everything. Uh, and you'll be able to handle something if something happens to your family. They get sick, uh, you know, tick bite, some kind of virus or plague or bioweapon or whatever. So make sure you protect your family. This kit supports one adult. If you go to cwc.health forward slash CDM and use promo code CDM, you get 10% off. So promo code CDM for 10% off. Time to protect your family. Uh, Bill, let's bring in uh, David Cross, please. Okay. David, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your patience. Gentlemen, thank you. I appreciate it. Laura, Laura's a bulldog. I'm telling you, huh? <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. What, what you so, so a couple things, Dave. I know you've got um, uh, actions with the um, uh, with the Georgia GOP coming up, and are on a time frame. We we had uh, talked just before uh, the show, and would like to hear your thoughts on some of the dynamics in the market. But in addition, um, there's been a lot of movement on election integrity this week. Uh, concerns about the Fulton ballots again. Um, some actions, some inaction, some questions. Um, maybe uh, maybe start with the financial sort of overview and then move into election integrity if we can, please. The financial is not nearly as much fun as the election integrity. Stuff. Okay, so fine. Let's, Do let's, it the let's... other way. <laughs> <laughs> let's start there. So, so yeah, I think it was yesterday we, we a consent decree came out of, uh, of Fulton County where Fulton County, you know, came out and said, you know what? Yeah, we had 3,600 duplicate scan, duplicate counted ballots. We will... We will stipulate that. And I think that's part of the Harrison Floyd case. Um, I, I've got a, a friend that, you've, you, that you guys have actually interviewed before, Kevin Monkla, uh, that has really, really done a lot of legwork to help out in that case. And I think a lot of the work that me and Kevin and a lot of other people that, that have put into this is, is really going to come out in Harrison Floyd's case. And the truth is going to be told because Harrison is not going to take a deal. I think he's I think he's going to fight to the end. I mean, the, the, the guy is a. The guy is a, you know, he's a professional fighter and I don't think he's going to give up. So I'm looking forward to, to seeing what's happening there. So if I understood what you just said, they've admitted there were 3,600 duplicate ballots. Correct. That's, that's a quarter, maybe more than a quarter of the entire uh, difference between Trump and Biden. Is that correct? Now we. That, that, that's correct. And throughout throughout the state of Georgia, I think we're I think we're approaching like nine or 10,000 is, is where we're at right now. 
Um, it could, could be more, but it's a developing story that's going on. There's a guy named Mad Liberals that, that's on uh, that's on Twitter. You can follow his work. He is spectacular. The man really knows his stuff, and he's he's doing a, a ton of work there to to ferret out those things. And there's another guy named War Torn Trump that's on that's on Twitter as well too. They're just they're doing a lot of heavy lifting. Is that why these criminal attorneys withdrew? You think? You know, I you know the the story the story is is that the criminal attorneys withdrew because. Uh, their, their, their law firm result is also representing Ray Smith, and that's a conflict of interest. Well, if I was a law firm and, and I, had, I had a client like Fulton County that has an unlimited budget, an unlimited, you know, an unlimited um, checkbook that's supported by taxes, I, I don't care how wealthy the private guy is. I, I want that public money. So it, you know, it just doesn't smell right. I, I don't know what's going on there. I still have my suspicions that, um, that, that, the, that the ballots that we are supposed to see in the Fabrito case, they've either been moved, they've been destroyed. I think they've been partially damaged. I don't know what the deal is, but I, I don't know of anybody who can verify that, that, um, that they, that they, that they all exist. And, and I put something on Twitter a little while back where I said, I'm, listen, I'll bet my left testicle that, uh, that Fulton County does not have 528,000 pieces of paper to substantiate the 528,000 votes from, from 2020. I just, I don't think it's, I don't think they're there. Well, do you, what's your, what's your sense of the next steps in uh, Harrison Floyd's case? And then um, is there movement yet in, uh, in the Favorito case? No, the, the, sorry. So the, the Harrison Floyd case, I think is, is proceeding I'm I'm encouraged by the way that it's going. It seems like it seems like it's it's moving along. On on the case with you know with Favorito versus versus Fulton. I mean, good grief, we we got standing a year ago. I mean, almost a year ago to you know to the day, and nobody's gone to court. Nothing's happened. And now with the with these other you know, you know with the with the Fulton County criminal attorneys bowing out, I think that they're they're going to look for another continuance to push this thing along so that. You know, I don't think anything's going to be heard until the summer. I mean, it's just it's just it's just obscene. It, ma it makes you wonder was somebody paid some money somewhere along the way to push this thing down the line until people forget about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. interesting. Sure. So, what do you uh, what do you sense uh, maybe coming now as as we look at the financial markets? People are getting nervous. They're, you know, they they see some. Un, uh, unexpected and un, unpredictable movement. I mean, just just looking at the debt clock before we get on here, we're <laughs> the debt alone should make people stay up at night. You know, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of of uh, federal debt for every taxpayer. I mean, goodness gracious. Yeah, and it's and the thing is, is Congress is not going to do anything because they don't have to worry about it. Number one, they, they don't have to balance a budget like me, you, or the state does because Congress can ultimately just print more money. And, and I, I made I made a video that, that folks can watch on my website. I think it may be like five or eight minutes long. It's, it's fairly short, but it just talks about like what happens when countries print money? What is the output? And what I used as the analog to, to help people understand is, is what's happened in Venezuela in the last 12 months. We've seen Venezuela print tons of money. So if you if you live in Venezuela and a year ago, let's say you sold your business, you know, your grandma died, left you some money or whatever. And let's say you have like a hundred thousand, you know, dollars um, worth of whatever their currency is, and you said, you know what, my choices are, I can put it into the stock market, I can go buy bonds, so stocks, bonds, I could go leave it in cash, 
I could buy real estate or I could buy precious metals. If you put it into the stock market, you're up 440%. If you put it into gold and silver, you're up 440%. If you left it in the sock drawer, you've lost 75% of your purchasing power. If you put it into bonds, you lost 75% of your purchasing power, less whatever interest that the government paid you. And if you put your money into real estate, you're probably up three or 400%, but nobody can afford to buy your property and you own something that's illiquid. So we're going to, we're going to have the same kind of thing is going to, I think is going to happen here in the United States. We're just on a slower time frame because our money is used everywhere. But I think the same analog exists and it's a, I think it's a, it's a really helpful video if, if people want to be able to watch it. So all you have to do is just go to us-am.com and it, it should pop up immediately. Well, those are ominous predictions. Obviously, people, if they haven't been thinking about this, they should be thinking about it and and, and preparing themselves in whatever way they find uh, find proper, obviously. Um, Listen, I, I personally have, you know, have a ton of silver. And when, when I say a ton, I mean, like so much that, you know, it, it, it it's um, it hurts to move it. All right. Um, <laughs> it, I've got I've got gold as well, too. And I, and I think it's I think it's something where. I do think at some point every fiat currency eventually does revert back to a physical, you know, back to some type of physical, you know, silver or gold. I, I think that's I think that's where we're headed. Mm -hmm. And and, I, and you can call me a conspiracy theory, theorist if you want, but I think it's one of the reasons why why JFK was killed is because he wanted to keep us he wanted to keep us on on a you know on a hard currency you know uh, basis and and didn't want to go to didn't want to go to fiat paper dollars. And when he did that, I think the CIA said, well, holy cow, if we do that, then we can't reshuffle the deck and move the money around and, and print whatever we need. So yep. it, I think, I think it's incumbent upon people to have, you know, to have some of their wealth, um, you know, in silver. And honestly, I think it, it makes sense to have some money, you know, in stocks. The things that I would not have is I probably wouldn't have a lot of paper dollar bills. I think that that's, I think if you own a lot of paper dollar bills, I think you have really expensive toilet paper. <laughs> it's interesting you should bring that up. I just saw something over the last 24 hours that uh, shows the value of a dollar in spending power, beginning with the uh, the formation of the Federal Reserve. And if we use that as the sort of beginning time frame, it was worth a dollar back then. And each time there's been a change with regard to taking gold and, and separating it from the, the cost of money, there's been a a sharp decline followed by a, a still a decline, but perhaps more gradual. And according to that particular chart that I saw in today's dollars, what was a, do a dollar's worth of spending power at the time the Federal Reserve was formed is now three cents of spending. Well, power. I, I'll, I'll tell I'll, I'll, you, know, so it's great to go back and, and look at the Federal Reserve like that, but it's over a hundred years ago and something that really probably hits home easier, like, you know, with, with the viewers that are out there is that, so I'm 54 years old, or I was born in 1969. If you have somebody that is maybe 10 years or 15 years older than me, when they were a kid, if their grandfather, you know, gave them a silver quarter that's worth 25 cents then and said, take it down to the grocery store, go to the gas station, whatever, get, get whatever treats you want to get. You could have bought three candy bars and a, and a, and a you know, and a pack of, um, and a pack of baseball or some gum. All right. 25 cents went a little while, little ways, you know, back then. And that's, that's just like back in the, in the early sixties. If you took the same, if you gave a kid 25 cents today, he's going to look at you like you're from Mars because he can't do anything with it. But if you give that same kid 
the same quarter from 1957, that same silver quarter, and said, and, and he's smart enough to say, hey, this quarter is different. I'm going to go sell it on eBay for the silver, you know, for, for at least the melt value. I think he's going to get, you know, roughly $5 for it. And if you take that down to, you know, down to Kroger or down to the gas station, you can actually buy a couple of candy bars. So the, that, that's one of the, that's one of the ways that I kind of drive it home for people about maintaining your, you know, about maintaining your purchasing power by using precious metals. That's pretty so, smart. So I've had a light go out here. I'm not doing a Halloween show and jazz neon hands here soon. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, so why, why, David, uh, before we end, why do people need an advisor? Why should they call you? You know, I, I think here's the thing. Not everybody needs an advisor. I've come across plenty of people where they've told me what they want to try to accomplish and I'll listen to how their investments are going and I'll tell them, you know what? I think you're doing just fine on your own. You want to use an advisor because you're either too busy to, to make the decisions or you're, or, you know, or you don't feel confident or competent to, to make the decisions or, you know, let's say you're, you're a real estate investor or your, your business is doing really well. I encourage people. I mean, I encourage people all the time, you know, own real estate, own, you know, own interest in, you know, in private businesses. Those things produce 15 and 20% cash on cash returns. I can't do that. People in my business can't do that. And if they tell you that they can, they're full of it. Um, you know, using a financial advisor is a place where you're going to take your excess capital that you don't want to put into those things. And you're going to you're going to put that with us because you want something that's going to get a reasonable return. It's going to keep, you know, keep up with your it, it's going to preserve your purchasing power. And, it, and we're going to have something that's liquid because everything that we that we invest in for our clients, we can turn it into cash within, you know, within minutes. Fantastic. That's great. Thank David, you. I know you've got uh, some stuff coming up here within the next 15, 20 minutes. Um, are you able to talk about what will be considered today at all? Or is that something that we have to talk about afterwards? No, it'll, it'll be, it'll be something to, to, to take a look afterwards. I mean, all I can tell you is that I have a meeting, you know, at three okay. o'clock. If I say anything more than that. Then no, that's fine. That's fine. We power gods. You, I got you. We appreciate you making time as always. And, and uh, we will, uh, we'll, I'm sure have more to talk about in coming weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks David. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Great guy. So yeah. Fantastic. If you need an advisor, give David a call. Uh, U.S. asset management. So uh, I'll fix the light, hopefully. Over so are, they, are they are they installing a disco ball? Did you say, or what's going on there? I don't know. The, the one of the the lights here in the studio just blew a blew a gasket. Um, so we have Laura Logan. I sat down with her earlier uh, this week, and or actually several days ago, and talked about Iran and Iran's involvement in the Middle East. And again, tying it back to Georgia, why the elections in Georgia are so important, because what is the threat to our way of life as a nation, which Georgia is right in the middle of as to whether which direction we're going to go. So Laura has a lot of experience with the MEK, the Iranian resistance. I just released a book on it, and we're going to talk about that after the interview. But uh, David, can you play uh, the interview I did with Laura? You bet. Here it comes have award-winning journalist Laura Logan with us today, and I want to talk about several things. One, the Iranian situation and its impact on the Middle East, and her knowledge of the resistance movement there. But Laura, first tell us about your series. You're about halfway through it now, right? Um, yes, it doesn't feel like it because meeting these weekly deadlines is uh, brutal. But um, we have, we've covered you know, a number of stories around January 6th. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a vast topic. So many people have been affected that you never get to everybody. And that's yeah. frustrating. But our latest episode um, that takes a closer look at Ray Epps is one of uh, four or five episodes that are coming out looking at undercovers and informants and or you know potential provocateurs in the crowd. And this one has, I mean, it's, it's getting close to five million views in uh, five days. So there's a lot of interest in this. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the feedback? Are you getting any feedback from, uh, you know, federal officials or just from uh, your? <laughs> I'm I'm not top of the of the pops with federal officials, Todd. Right, right. They don't um, they don't you know go out of their way to speak to me. We approach them all the time. Um, we do manage, you know, there are good people there, and we manage to get people to uh, talk to us from time to time. But typically, they hide behind. Um, the statement that you know they'll comment on January six cases once all of them are over, not just individual cases. So you don't get very far. But right. I tell you what, the biggest feedback with the show has been that um, people are uh, grateful for a quality production um, that does real investigative journalism. You know, there's mm-hmm. a there are a lot of podcasts, there are a lot of opinion shows out there, um, but really the um, you know, doing old-fashioned journalism in the style of 60 Minutes, the way I did it for many years at CBS, um, is something that is very difficult to do. It's very expensive, and people don't really want to pay for it. Um, but but the But the reaction, the response that we've gotten has shown that people are desperate for it. So it's hard to find that balance. We don't have a network behind us. We don't have the resources of a massive company. You know, we just mm-hmm. have a few committed people who are doing everything they can. Um, and, you know, no doubt, uh, you know, no one bats a thousand, right? So I'm just waiting for the hammer to fall, but we are doing our very best. Uh, well, uh, we will continue to post out your uh, series on CDM. So I wanted to talk to you because um, you, you and I met at an event a couple of years ago in Tampa, I believe. And I asked you about what your thoughts were on the Mujahideen Kalk or the Iranian resistance inside Iran. And I just had just released a book on the subject and you were kind enough to do a blurb on the back. But I was curious, what is your how did you get involved with the MEK and, and what is your what are your general thoughts about them? Well, I first met members of the MEK in Baghdad when I was living in Iraq for five years from 2003 to 2008. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, uh, they had been given refuge inside Iraq by Saddam Hussein. They were pretty much prisoners Mm -hmm. inside um, a camp. uh, I believe it was outside of Diyala, north of Baghdad. And when I say prisoners, you know, they didn't have absolute freedom of movement. There were um, exceptions to that where leaders or, you know, various representatives of the group could travel to Baghdad on supply runs and, you know, and for meetings. But for the most part, they were, um, it, it was pretty much an, an open air prison, which was they- that, Was that Camp Liberty? I think that no, was- No, that was they, Camp Ashraf. Ashraf, That was okay. before Liberty. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. This, okay. this was really when um, they, you know, members of the opposition who fled the Iranian regime were given refuge by Saddam Hussein when he mm-hmm. was still in power. And they built a city in Camp Ashraf, which is mm-hmm. one of the sort of extraordinary things about the Mujahideen Nechalk and the MEK, you know, people, the Iranian regime is very adept at discrediting them and their propaganda um, 
machine has been extremely effective. And there were some things with the MEK, you know, that lent itself to that narrative. And so it was has been, what I found is that it's been a real struggle for the opposition to be taken seriously by the West and to break through that propaganda because the biggest thing that was sort of held against them was that they were a cult, mm -hmm. you know, and they had, um, and they had sort of cult-like rules and, and so on. Um, some of which were related to marriage and divorce and, they had these female battalions that, um, and videos of them sort of marching in formation. And, and this all lent itself to the Iranian propaganda, which was very carefully crafted. But what I found was um, very much the opposite of that. I found very sincere individuals who um, really had survived against all the odds, who had no idea what their future was going to be and who were desperate to be hurt. Um, these are the people who the West embraced, as you know, right? When they came forward with the information about Iran's nuclear program and exposed how the Iranian regime was lying, then the West loved the MEK. They couldn't, they were falling over themselves to get um, this information out. It was the basis of you know many US policies and actions um, against the Iranian regime to limit their nuclear program and MEK were, um, they were, uh, I mean, they were at the center of that. Without the MEK, that information would not um, have been known. And so they changed history, really. But then uh, just as quickly, you know, the world turned on them, um, which is the amazing part. I mean, it shouldn't surprise people, I suppose, if you look at where we are today, because on the one hand, you have Iran as the number one sponsor, uh, state sponsor of terrorism in the world, and yet you have um, one American administration after another, you know, I mean, Obama and Biden falling over themselves, you know, to make friends with the mullahs without ever holding them accountable for murdering American citizens on the, I mean, Amer American citizens on the battlefield in Iraq and, you know, murdering uh, U.S. allies and proxies all over the world. I mean, it's just the hypocrisy is sort of staggering and there is no more visual example of that than the MEK, because these people stand, they've paid in blood for that hypocrisy, mm -hmm. much like the Afghans. Um, you know, they have really been a casualty of their um, alliance with the West and their uh, fight for freedom. Because in Iraq, they, I mean, in Iran, they just get hunted down one by one by one and the world stands by says nothing and does nothing it's unbelievable and even continues to try to repress them i mean you know you're right they are a paramilitary organization i mean they're, they're literally a military force that has almost like a ucmj code instilled in it so there are things they can and can't do once they join the organization um but i'm shocked at how even today nobody's talking about the mek here we have the iran you know behind the proxy armies of hezbollah and hamas and the Israeli conflict, and nobody's talking about the resistance in Iran. That seems to me a natural way to put pressure on Iran. Well, you, I mean, I, I actually couldn't agree with you more on that. But what is, to me, more astonishing and really quite just staggering is that the, the Iranian resistance, I mean, we people covered the Green Revolution. You know, they covered previous campaigns. Sure, they lost interest and it didn't get as much coverage as it should have. 
But this time around, the protests were bigger and they were, uh, they covered almost the entire country, the length and breadth of Iran. They covered every age group. This wasn't just the young people in the university standing up. This wasn't just, you know, seasoned uh, activists and, and professionals and so on. I mean, this is literally the Iranian people have had enough. If ever there was an opportunity for the world to highlight uh, what the uh, regime in Iran is doing to its own people and, uh, you know, to put any kind of pressure on global institutions or to support the Iranian people in their fight. I mean, this was the moment. If you wanted to get rid of Iran, this was your golden opportunity. The only thing it says to me is, I mean, it says two things. One is that, um, you know, for, if I use my own example, I am so bogged down in the daily fight for survival mm -hmm. in America mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. that although I uh, put a lot of information as much as I could out on my social media accounts, I didn't do nearly enough because, I mean, I, I am buried in January 6th mm -hmm. and uh, child trafficking and the border and, a, and, you know, a number of other things. And uh, we're just every direction we turn, something else is literally coming apart at the seams. We're not talking about small problems, you know? I mean, we're talking about problems on an epic scale, whether it's um, the war against uh, food, right? And farmers, how they're shrinking the food supply, um, or it's the pressure on us to move away from fossil fuels mm -hmm. um, based on some fantasy that isn't even backed up by one shred of science. In fact, the only thing the science does is prove over and over again that everything they say about so-called climate change is a lie, right? So whether you're fighting for that or you're fighting for the innocence uh, or the right of children to remain innocent and fighting against their corruption, with the, this unbelievably graphic, ridiculous material that they're forcing on kids in schools, which they outrageously defend. I just, I can't believe it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it doesn't really, it, whatever direction you turn, there's so many fires to fight. So I think the the lack of attention on the opposition in Iran is, is in part a casualty of that. Um, also, the Iranian regime is extremely skilled at exploiting any opportunity like that. You know, when you look back at the Green Revolution, the moment Michael Jackson died and the world's media turned, or I don't know if it was when he died or he went on trial, but it was mm -hmm. a huge Michael Jackson story. And the world's media pivoted and everyone's attention turned. It turned away from the protests in Iran and Iran used that to its advantage. So they're very, very skilled at that. We see that from history. Um, so that's one reason that I think people didn't hear about it. And then the, the other reason that they didn't hear about it is that the Iranian regime is really just, um, is really has allies within the United States government today. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, and we know this. We know it because look what just happened that was just exposed um, when the FBI has now suspended um, a member of, I believe he's of the National Security Council for his um, inappropriate, they, they call it sort of inappropriate relationship with Iran, right? Which is, which we is call a nice way of saying he's a spy. <laughs> yeah. He's a spy and he's got other spies um, for the regime in the government. One of them is a woman. I don't remember her name escapes me now. But mm -hmm. Todd, I don't think people really understand what that means.
you know? Mm -hmm. When you have people who are communicating with the authorities in Iran, who are loyal to the authorities in Iran, and have security clearances, top secret security clearances, where they have access to mm -hmm. not just information in general about US policy and the US government and so on. But these people have now have access to information about who exactly in the United States government, in the Department of Defense, in the military, has been tasked and has worked to uh, protect and defend this country against Iran. For example, who are the people that opposed them and limited their uh, activities on the Iraqi battlefield when mm -hmm. Iran was killing hundreds of American soldiers with, um, you know, with munitions that were crafted by the Iranians in Iran, deployed through their proxies to mm -hmm. murder as many Americans as possible. I mean, this means that we asked our own citizens, we the United States asked our own citizens to sign up and go on covert operations to protect this country against our enemies. And then we allowed our enemies access to their names and addresses. Yeah. And nobody Nothing. cares. That's a whole other subject we could get into, but um, the infiltration of the U.S. government. Uh, which which speaks to exactly why the U.S. government isn't up in arms um, or isn't making a noise about the protests in Iran because right. they're on the same side as the regime. They don't support the protests. They don't support the MEK. They don't support the option. How many years did the MEK fight to get taken off the state sponsor of terrorism list? Yeah. How many years did they fight that? It was a miracle that they came off that list. One of the few people ever to do so. And that was cited as the reason by one U.S. administration after another. That was the reason that was given for why they couldn't support the MEK. Okay, well, they got that taken care of. They defied expectations and they finally got themselves removed from that list. And what happened? That was just in time for the Obama and Biden regimes to send billions of dollars in U.S. taxpayer money to keep the regime in power. And allow the regime to infiltrate Camp Ashraf and Liberty and, and kill and murder its own people. hundreds of them. Yeah. Hundreds, if not thousands. So the uh, one thing I, I struck me about the MEK is the level of participation of women and the percentage of girls who are the demonstrators. And I, you know, I sat down with some of their representatives in Paris at their headquarters uh, a couple of years ago for some time. And these girls come in and their their hands are blown off. You know, they're they're literally uh, warriors fighting the mullahs. And these are the real feminists, in my view, versus you know the cultural Marxist kind in the U.S. that really don't care about women in other parts of the world. What do you think of that? Well, the MEK is led by a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maria Ranjavi. Mm -hmm. You know, they put a woman in charge. They had tank battalions that are all female. Mm -hmm. They have put woman, women front and center from the very beginning. But because they had rules, you know, about marriage and divorce and other things like that, mm -hmm. it allowed the Iranian regime to shift the propaganda narrative away from you know, what that said about the independence of women and um, and feminism and shifted it into this sort of, you know, shady cult like, oh, you're a journalist, don't have anything to do with the MEK. You know, you're a politician. Oh, you don't want to be associated with those weirdos, you know, yeah. and they did that very effectively. And they buried the fact 
that men and women, you, you know, in Camp Ashraf and later when they moved, um, you know, to the airport um, in Baghdad and then after they, you know, they were forced out of Ashraf and then they were forced out of the camp at the airport um, and forced to flee. I mean, at every step along the way, these people face such an epic struggle for survival um, with so little support that there, there really isn't time or opportunity for you to limit your ability to survive. And that has really, I mean, look at Iran's history. Iran is sort of contradictory in a sense because they've always had great universities and women have always been very well educated in Iran, mm -hmm. not all mm -hmm. the women, but you do have this extremely well-educated class of women, much more so than across the border in neighboring Afghanistan. In fact, if you go to the north of Afghanistan to Herat, which, which borders Iran, that's where you find, you know, a university and that's where you find women with more education. Not that it helps them today because they can't do anything with an education under the terrorist regime that the U.S. installed there. But nevertheless, Iran has always believed very firmly the Persians have a very proud history of education and, uh, and culture and everything else. And so you have this contradiction where on the one hand, Iranian women are very well educated and very and sophisticated, but at the same time, they live in a society that is unbelievably oppressive. Except yeah. when it comes to punishing, except when it comes to punishing the opposition, right? Then suddenly the Iranians don't seem to care very much that women you know, are more delicate or need to be treated differently to men. Then they're just as happy to imprison and torture them as they are to the men. Yeah, many of the young protesters are women because they have no, they realize they have no future. They, they have nothing to lose. Yes. So, so it's so they go out and they know they're going to probably be captured and tortured and die, but they do it anyway. Yes, it's, and not only that, they do they they defy the morality, the so-called morality police, right? Mm -hmm. That forces them, you know, to wear the hijab and and everything else. They yes. defy these people openly. They make uh, videos about it. I mean, it's so moving. I think the Iranian women are amongst the bravest women in the world right yes. now i it's breathtaking i mean sometimes honestly when i see what they're doing my heart is in my mouth because i know what they're risking and i can't i mean evan prison where many of these political mm -hmm. prisoners go in in iran is just the stories of what takes place behind the walls of evan prison is just horrifying and you know I mean, I've been I'm, I've been raped myself. I was a victim mm -hmm. of gang rape in Egypt, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. you you can't help it. Your mind turns to that because you know this is an easy weapon of war. It's a way to intimidate and obliterate the soul of a woman without mm -hmm. you know sort of how you kill a woman without murdering her. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and so your heart breaks. My heart breaks for these women, and it's one of the enduring shames of our lifetimes taught that we have allowed this this uh, propaganda narrative of the Iranian regime to prevail. And there's, you know, there's something else about the MEK that's always uh, I've, uh, astonished me, which is how meticulous they are in keeping records. You know, I mean, they know they, they've been fighting many layers um, of propaganda over the years. And the way that they have fought back is to document absolutely everything. You know, when, when they would come down from uh, Diala and meet with me or over the, the years as we stayed in touch through all the protests, 
I would always, they'd tell me tales of horror and I would say, do you have pictures? Do you have video? You know, I would apologize mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't want to, um, I'm not doubting them, but I can't help them without evidence. And that's what I used to tell them. Look, I can't help you. I can't get this story out if all I have is your word. You know, if you have this many injured, let me see them. If you have, if these things are happening, you need to document them. And they've done that, but they've documented what's happened in every single way. They have books that they have put out. They have records, you know, they have a file after file after file. They have photographs. Um, they have eyewitness accounts. I mean, the thing about it is that for any journalist worth their salt, who has an open mind and an open heart, there is more than enough information there for you to start asking questions. It doesn't mean that you have to never take anything anyone says just at face value. No one's suggesting that they're always right, you know, and that they're right about everything. But I have an endless stream now, countless videos that come from all over Iran that have documented and, and revealed the breadth of the current protests. And that in itself uh, reveal is so revealing because it shows the breadth and the depth of the, uh, the current powers in America to ignore and not to exploit this opportunity in Iran against a regime that really is responsible for so many deaths of its own people and people all over the world through its proxies and through its Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Laura, I know you're busy. you got to go to the airport. Thank you for uh, spending some time with me. The book is called Paying the Price, the Untold Story of the Iranian Resistance. You put a nice blurb on the back, and uh, I look forward to talking to you more about this subject down the road. Thanks again, Laura. Thank you so much, Todd. Okay, take care. Take care. What a touching uh, interview. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Laura is fantastic. So I apologize for the lighting. We'll have it fixed next show, but it's better than, than the spooky thing we had going on before. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Laura's fantastic. And uh, we're going to do another interview because she's very knowledgeable on the MEK, which is the resistance movement in Iran to bring freedom to Persia. And uh, just so you know, audience knows we've had multiple book signings canceled because they wanted to focus on wellness instead of really what's going on in the world. They told us we've had interviews that are not being allowed to be uploaded to Amazon. So uh, we think that uh, someone up in the administration has directed people not to get this book out there. So you can go to historyofbooks.com. It's available for sale anywhere, but uh, they're definitely clamping down on the distribution and awareness. Uh, so check it out, paying the price. You'll definitely be informed, and you'll, I guarantee you you'll learn a lot with this book. And uh, with that, Bill, let's uh, let's talk about food security a minute. We've talked about medical security. You know, we have uh, Glade Miller Smith, who is our cattleman out in Nebraska. He is very uh, he communicates a lot. He's very easy to talk to, get in touch with. He re responds on text. If you become a customer, my son emailed or texted him recently about how to cook a steak and which steak to buy, and he was very uh, gracious in, in giving advice and. We are very big on, uh, and we're going to have another interview with him next week uh, on self-reliance and how to prepare for what is coming. Uh, and, and that is a, a big focus of the show. And so food, food security is big. And uh, Bill, why don't you play that ad from, uh, from Glade Miller-Smith? Okay. It's going to be a good day. 
baby. Shipping beef this Monday. We do have a little bit left available here. Check us out, familyfarmbeefbox.com. Thanks, have a good day. So the holidays are coming. What a great way to have fun for your grandkids or whatever with a big box of frozen beef and you get to pick, let the kids pick what you're going to eat, uh, learn how to prepare it and have a family gathering around the piece of meat that uh, you picked and then do it again the next night. It's, it's fantastic beef and there's no mRNA and uh, you'll be very happy and, and your family will be safe. So with that, uh, Let's bring in as our next guest on. Yes. So we have a treat for you. We're talking about Ukraine today. Actually, yes, he's here. I'm going to bring in Alex. Alex is a is from Kiev. He's a longtime source of CD Media, uh, CDM, and Tsarism, our Eastern European site. He's helped us break a lot of news in that region. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex. Is he there? His mic is muted. Hang on. You there, Alex? Yeah, I'm here. Hello, okay, Todd. great, great, great. Thanks for coming on. So um, I'm going to let you talk, Alex, because the, the narrative on Ukraine is is not what is true. What you're hearing is really not what's going on. So tell us what you think our audience should know in country at the moment. Well, the current situation in uh, Ukraine and society is that uh, majority of people are simply tired, but um, I don't see any um, any organized protests or revolts uh, in cities I don't see I don't see any um, any people speaking about any protests uh, in uh, Ukrainian media or any uh, telegram channels I see that uh, many people are simply tired and uh, majority of people who are able to speak uh, they're afraid and even those people those bloggers and those political figures who were very um, open and not afraid to speak in times uh, when uh, Yanukovych oppressed uh, uh, people prior to the Orange Revolution. Those people, even those people, are afraid to speak. And uh, uh, we see why. I mean, last week, uh, um, and last week, uh, one person was killed, uh, a major um a major from the ukrainian army uh who used to be an aide uh, to the commander-in-chief Zavuzhny. and uh, my personal forecast and understanding of this is that uh, people are very much afraid so he he was given a bomb of basically grenades at his house was the story right or something like yes that? yes that this is the story we talked with you last time yeah yeah so um Talk about Zelensky. Who is Zelensky? Who, who, who do the Ukrainian people see him as and who is he really? Well, uh, five years ago when people voted for Zelensky, there was a choice to vote for Poroshenko as a dictator or a clown uh, who might have uh, be fun for people and um, majority of people simply voted for fun. And this is what was... Um, declared um, in all TV channels that uh, let's vote for fun. And uh, apparently five years uh, after that, uh, we all in Ukraine, we all understand that uh, the fun didn't happen. And uh, um, the observation that each consecutive, uh, each next following president of Ukraine is worse than previous. 
this uh, observation got conf was confirmed by Zelensky, and um, uh, the current status uh, with the government, of what my my colleagues observe and what I observe is the state of agony. The government is in agony state, and the situation is an agony is an agony from the social analysis, from the political analysis, and from the military analysis. And so Zelensky is essentially a dictator at this point, correct? Uh, he established a dictatorship with uh, his um, own uh, personal aide, called uh, the name called Yermak Andri. So right now we can say say uh, we can say that there are two dictators. It's like a dictatorship partnership in Ukraine, mm -hmm. uh, established by Andriy Yermak and uh, um, President Zelensky. Um, Altogether, two of them uh, control all ministries uh, of the cabinet of ministers uh, uh, in the country. Um, it's worth to mention that Andriy Yermak is not uh, even a politically assigned uh, official, political government official of Ukrainian government. He's a head of secretariat and uh, he's an advisor uh, to President Zelensky. He's not a politically governmentally appointed political figure. So he's nobody, and uh, he controls uh, all ministers. He appoints all ministers. He controls the state uh, security service of Ukraine. He controls the National Bank of Ukraine. He controls almost um, all governmental agency uh, agencies in in Ukraine. Uh, the state, the current constitutional state in Ukraine, has been violated in October. Zelensky declared that there will there will be no elections uh, in March. Uh, the parliamentary elections uh, uh, were not held in October. That's why the Parliament of Ukraine is currently in a not uh, constitutional state. Uh, the Parliament of Ukraine is illegitimate. Uh, and um, um, the current uh, military status uh, the, um, in Ukraine is also illegitimate. And uh, all um, constitutional laws, uh, laws that I uh, related to that were violated. And we can uh, conclude that uh, Ukraine is currently is not in the constitutional state. So I want to talk about Soros and his involvement, but talk to us, where is the war and how long would it last in your opinion? Well, uh, my opinion is based on uh, the observation. Uh, based also, I I do um, make some analysis of the front line and uh, the financing and the current um, losses on both sides, uh, on Ukrainian side and Russian side. And in my opinion, that uh, we see the stalemate uh, on the front line. The front line is not moving any anywhere drastically. Uh, this situation has been dragging for more than a year already. Uh, however, um, Russian um, Russian forces um, pre uh, press Ukrainian defense line really, really bad in a really bad uh, situation. And that's why there are current. Um, my personal forecast is that uh, the war will not uh, end anytime soon. Uh, the 
the opinions I obtain once in a while from uh, people and from the military sources I communicate uh, to um, give me a drastical forecast uh, anywhere from two years up to eight years uh, into the future. So that means that uh, the, um, the optimistic scenario is another two years and the pessimistic scenario um, discussed by high-ranked uh, military uh, military officers in Ukraine is uh, up to 80 years additionally. How would they find enough people to fight that long? Are they... The current mobilization efforts are really crazy. Uh, the parliament of Ukraine, led by dictator Andrei Yermak, um, decreased the minimum age um, to 21-year-old. And they are drafting the students of uh, universities. Also, last week, uh, the mobilization effort was announced that uh, uh, women will be drafted and allowed to serve in the army. A couple, a couple of um, women dressed in military uniform appeared uh, online, uh, urging women of Ukraine to uh, to be drafted and urgent women of Ukraine to uh, to come to military outposts and get drafted to the Ukrainian army, um, addressing the issue that we don't have enough men already. And that's why, if not for women, we, we say in Ukraine, uh, might lose the country. Uh, I find uh, this kind of uh, military advertisement for drafting as very um, burdensome, painful, and uh, not legal, given the fact that the current military outpost and uh, draft and service centers in Ukraine, they are not government-owned organizations, they are private organizations. We see alarming um, kidnapping of men uh, on the streets and in various parts of Ukraine. Um, police and uh, private military uh, drafters simply uh, find um, men on, on, the, on the streets in, in various parts of Ukraine and they simply kidnap them, they throw them into the military, military small military bus and they bring them to sign the papers to be drafted. Uh, I see more and more opposition in the news, in the private telegram channels and private media in Ukraine and private forums of Ukraine against this movement. I see more and more videos of uh, kidnapping uh, on the streets. Uh, nevertheless, um, there are a lot of people saying that uh, the mobilization should continue. And we see more and more government officials uh, um, speaking the same kind of narrative uh, uh, from the TV screen, there's only one TV, TV channel left in uh, in Ukraine, that mobilization efforts should continue. And uh, from my personal understanding, this is the agony of the process of mobilization. Yeah. So before uh, we're going to talk about Soros, but Bill, do you have any questions? One, one comes to mind. Um, the American public, well, let me begin a different way. Many people, when they're in a situation where there's these kinds of troubles, you know, really dastardly troubles 
involving family themselves, everything. They have a tendency to drop back and rely on faith. And the American public has seen reports of Zelensky having uh, priests um, arrested, closing churches, doing other things. Is that what you're seeing there? And what is what is the people's feeling about that, if, if so? Well, just uh, approximately one month ago, the parliament of Ukraine voted uh, to ban the Ukrainian Church of uh, Moscow Protectorate, Moscow, um, Moscow, the Patriarch, yeah, Patriarch, right? Yeah. Thank you, Todd. And um, that um, uh, that new law, that new ban from the Ukrainian Parliament, sparked uh, um, sparked uh, dis- a lot of disappointments in uh, in the society of Ukraine. I saw I saw that in the news and. Uh, um, observing um, the churches and uh, uh, and knowing the churches in in Kiev I can say I can I can say that uh, almost all churches in the Kiev uh, were under the Moscow uh, patriarchy uh, and um, people who visit those churches they they get really disappointed so, um, I, I think that uh, the ban of any church uh, or from any de- de- domination or any patriarchy is the way to um, to to instate uh, conflicts in the society, and this is really bad for any Russian-speaking Ukrainian or Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainian. Yeah. So, last thing uh, you wanted to talk about Soros, and I have the video. Do you want me to play that now? Or yes, let's take a look at this video, and then I would like to show you a couple of sure. uh, examples of documents related to uh, the influence of Soros organizations uh, onto Ukraine. Sure, here we go. Up the foundation in Ukraine in 1990, which was two years before the independence of Ukraine. What does George Soros figure in all this? We talked about some positive results from the activities of this gentleman. Then we should have noted some success. But his activity is mainly focused on those countries where he took an active position with his various funds. We remember the countries in North Africa where the Arab Spring happened. Libya, Tunisia, and Egypt. We remember the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. We remember the Rose Revolution in Georgia. We remember the Orange Revolution in 2004. And finally, the consequences of not only the Orange Revolution, but also the Revolution of Dignity of 2013 and 2014. This is also his activity. He did not stop. He continued to operate in 2015 and 2016. Hillary Clinton comes in as Secretary of State, and at that point she sets up a private email system. I think now it's pretty clear that part of what was going on is they were setting up the underpinnings that would set up the Madonna. She introduced a program called Civil Society 2.0. What we've done with Secretary Clinton's Civil Society 2.0 program is we've taken one of America's undeniable strengths, the strength of our technology and of our innovators, and we've put them to work in service of our diplomatic goals. This is a way for the U.S. government to work directly with NGOs like International Renaissance, funded by George Soros. And while working with those NGOs, fund money to them, but also training. 
and the kind of training that would be used when the Madan would start. All right. Um, um, let's uh, let's bring this document. Uh, can I show this document? All right. Um, so what you see here right now on the screen is uh, the uh, you can see the return of private foundation, and uh, this is the multi-page uh, reports for the Renaissance Foundation uh, that uh, is owned by Soros Funds. And there are a number of organizations related to the Soros Empire. It's not only Renaissance Foundation. You can you need to understand that uh, he uses uh, various other names for various other legal entities. And uh, it's all organized like a network of shell funds and network of uh, daughter parent uh, um, organizations, they're all related to each other. And uh, looking at this report, and if we search for, for um, next slide, please. Yeah, if you look at, at uh, this report, we can see there are a lot of uh, countries where the financing is being sent to. And uh, I searched for, uh, for this document uh, for Ukraine, and I found multiple NGOs and NPOs located in Ukraine in areas close to uh, to government agencies. And uh, those NGOs and NPOs, uh, I knew them from my work in Ukraine. They, uh, they, they are used to, to influence the reforms in Ukraine, uh, not in a good way, sometimes uh, in a proper way, in a, some, sometimes in a process way, but major reforms are, that are brought by these organizations, they, are, they influence Ukraine in a bad way. Next slide, please. So you can see a lot of uh, this uh, NPOs and NGOs on the screen. Next mm -hmm. slide. Next slide. Next slide. Next slide. Um, I I just made it made screenshots on a different uh, organization mm -hmm. on that. Um, right now on the screen, you can see that uh, um, there are several organizations that are very notorious uh, uh, for influence of Soros related parties in Ukraine. One of this organization is called Vox Ukraine, and this is the daughter company of uh, uh, Vox.com, a Vox organization from that has offices in the United States and uh, the United Kingdom. The Vox in Ukraine is being financed directly from the Renaissance Foundation and the Open Society Foundation. Vox Ukraine uh, is uh, directly related to the Kiev's Cold Economics and a couple other. And Renaissance Foundation is related and there is one of the major donors, uh, in fact, the main major donor um, to the Kiev's Cold Economics. Next slide. You can see here that... Uh, um, Ransom Foundation uses the NPOs and NGOs to influence the reforms and re, uh, and state and install the government puppet government officials into the Parliament of Ukraine and ministries of Ukraine. Uh, if we look at the composition of the Parliament of Ukraine, we can see a lot of people's deputies in the Ukrainian government uh, that uh, have influence uh, uh, from source-related organizations in Ukraine. A lot of current ministers in the governments of Ukraine, they are either installed by Andrei Yermak or uh, source-related funds in Ukraine. Uh, another, uh, come, please come back one, one okay. slide. Yeah. Um, another um, connection of source to, uh, to We've Ukraine. We've got like two minutes left. Yeah, yeah. Let, okay. let me finish then. Uh, is uh, this person I, I told you about, uh, is, uh, his name is Andrei Yermak. Uh, 
right here on this page you can see uh, he's uh, he's he he's currently um, traveling to the United States to have a meeting with uh, uh, Mr. Sullivan in Washington. Next slide. Uh, next, next, uh, next, yeah. next. Uh, just uh, last week, there was a meeting of uh, Alex Soros, uh, son of George Soros, and you can see the really friendly relations of uh, uh, partner dictator Andrei Yermak with uh, son of George Soros and the working meeting with George Soros. And apparently, then uh, the the plan for Andrei Yermak to travel to Washington D.C. was organized by. Alex Soros. Next slide, please. And right here, you can see uh, Andrei Yermak speaking to the ambassador of the United States, uh, Bridget Brink. And on the picture below, you can see Andrei Yermak having enormous amount of meetings uh, with uh, uh, Mr. McFall, uh, Dr. McFall, who is the professor and former uh, ambassador of the United States to Russia, and he was really influential to uh, the revolutions in Ukraine as well. Next slide, please. And so you can see right here on this picture, Mr. Yatsenyuk. He's a former prime minister of Ukraine. He has friendly relations with George Soros. And on the next slide, you can see, next slide. This is the letter from George Soros to the uh, parliament and president of Ukraine. And Mr. Yatsenyuk, who is, used to be Prime Minister of Ukraine and President of Ukraine, Poroshenko. In this letter, Mr. George Soros explains how he would influence the international organizations and the government of Ukraine to supply financing required for Ukraine to continue uh, to continue with uh, the, the life of Ukrainian government. Next slide. And you can see here that Mr. Uh, Mr. George Soros... Uh, promises to negotiate $15 billion package of financing from the U.S. Treasury to Ukrainian government. We can see um, um, at this uh, letter that Soros uh, has established a, a very diverse network of uh, NPOs, NGOs, and uh, non-governmental institutions in Ukraine directly influence, influencing the Parliament of Ukraine the ministers of Ukraine and the presidents of Ukraine. Uh, he installs uh, prime ministers and ministers in Ukraine, and he directly influences the treasury and uh, the intergovernmental processes uh, in negotiations of uh, huge billion-dollar packages sent to Ukraine. And uh, this letter is not the only case uh, known to uh, analysts, and we can say that... Uh, at the end, uh, uh, there are a, a really small group of people who actually influence the government of Ukraine and Ukraine as a country. Thank Alex, you. thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, we'll have you back. I've got to get to our next guest, but uh, okay, welcome thank information. You. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. So I know Chris has been waiting. Let's bring him in. And we'll talk about Ukraine afterwards. Chris, thank you for your patience. I know it's, uh, you, we screwed you up on the time and you were gracious enough to hang out. So um, you're on mute. Uh, let me unmute you. There. Well, no, it's you. Can you unmute yourself? There we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you got for on. us today, my friend? I know you've been well, so busy and we've been going. I don't know what you want to say and what you can't say and what you can. So I'll let you go. Sure. So here, here's what I can say. Um, this... Uh, 
nationwide Smurf network. It is 100% tied to George Soros and his illicit NGOs and activities. Um, we know this because of the way the money flows. We know this because of the interactions. We know this because of who the players are. So, um, you know, we have a weaponized uh, New York State Attorney General who is all over Trump. And uh, well, while she herself has been the massive beneficiary of an identity theft credit card fraud scheme that, you know, that, that we see going on everywhere. We see it with Alvin Bragg. We saw it in Georgia with Fannie Willis. Yeah, this ties back to Georgia. Just let me throw out there. All of this comes back home to good old Fulton County and everywhere else. Sure does. And yeah. so Soros, they had done, he'd done, he'd done a really good job at taking out uh, or uh, taking control of things at a federal level. And so for the past few years, they've been really working hard to beef up and install their own judges, their own attorney generals. And, and, and they've been very effective at it. Um, but we followed the money and we're hitting them hard. So we hit them um, in Wisconsin with Megan Wolf. We hit them with Janet Prostakowicz, the uh, Supreme Court justice there. And this week, uh, we got filed um, uh, ethics complaints and criminal complaints against Josh Call, the attorney general in Wisconsin. Um, we've, uh, we've expanded our activities outward, and we're uh, investigating some pretty interesting stuff in Texas as well now, and ties how... Uh, these Smurfs that we identified who lived in Texas, who were donating in the Wisconsin um, elections, they were also doing the same thing in Georgia elections. And so we have a, we have a, a pretty interesting web here. Um, and it, a lot of it lead, definitely leads back to George Soros, leads back to moveon.org, leads back to Act Blue and uh, some of their newer methodologies like Democracy Engine, um, Amalgamated Bank, um, JP Morgan, Bank of America, and um, you know, some pretty nefarious things. Uh, there's no way that they could not, the banks could not have known that this was going on. They have been um, willfully blind to it. And, uh, you know, so we've got, We've got a lot mapped out here. So just so our audience understands, you have massive funding being pushed through Congress going to Ukraine. A lot of it, who knows, the percentage is skimmed off the top. Some goes offshore to their banking accounts. But a lot, we think, is funneled back into the U.S. political system via money laundering. And this is why they were pushing so hard. McCarthy was pushing so hard to get the no spending caps, $80 billion, $100 billion, whatever, that's all going to flow back against MAGA in the next year, we think. And you're basically under, you know, uncovering how they're doing that. But you just saw Alex Soros and Buttigieg and all these people go to Ukraine because that's where they can do anything they want 
and people don't realize that yeah, they were running ops against Donald Trump. First, it was Bernie Sanders. Then it was Donald Trump. So um, they're running operations against Americans out of Ukraine. And that's why Ukraine is so important. Anything else? Yeah, Chris, that it's you wanted definitely. To go the, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely payback. Um, this whole thing with Zelensky, yeah. you know, because he if you think about it, he played he definitely played a big role in the impeachment, um, you know, of Donald Trump. I mean, what all it would have taken was, you know, him saying, oh, yeah, we were just, you know, talking about things that, you know, uh, a new incoming president would have been talking about. But the yeah. but he didn't. And the people who sat in on that call didn't either yeah. yeah so you know it's uh it's very very interesting very very interesting how all of this is playing out so um, anything else you want to get out to our audience yeah um the stuff that we saw in pennsylvania and in again in georgia this week um really strengthens and bolsters and reinforces everything that we've been saying about the voting machines and why the audit logs are so important. Um, ESNS admitted that somebody programmed the election wrong in Pennsylvania and it caused the votes to flip. Well, we already saw that. We saw that in the audit logs that we've obtained uh, throughout the United States. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty big thing. The other big thing that is going on this week um, I reached out to the, uh, um, we, we've been fighting tooth and nail to get the audit logs from Maryland, and they are absolutely refusing to comply with Maryland um, public records requests. And so somebody, um, one of the election uh, board members, they uh, forwarded um, a uh, very tersely worded email that I had sent them to the assistant attorney general. Uh, for Maryland. So I then in turn sent the assistant attorney general for Maryland, a very uh, thorough and complete email laying out the fact that there seems to be a very large conspiracy to hide uh, the evidence of illegal elections. And I asked him in his professional legal opinion as the, as the assistant attorney general for the state of Maryland, if uh, how can uh, how can the election administrators in Maryland certify elections as legal legal lawful elections if they were conducted on machines that didn't have valid certifications and they were and then I asked them if it was legal for them to hide the public records and uh, he, oddly he didn't respond yet maybe this week he'll they'll reply back. I won't hold my breath, but they're on notice. Okay, Chris, I know you got a lot going. We don't have much, we got to go because yeah. we're running late today. And thank you again for being so gracious and uh, wasting your Sunday afternoon with us. I appreciate it. And, uh, <laughs> tell your family, thank you. And right. um, so we'll have you back. And because I know what you're working on and when you can tell the audience, we will, we will release it. Thank you. All right. Sounds Thanks, great. Chris. Take care. Talk to you soon. Oh, bear with me for a moment. <laughs> Sorry. There we go. Okay. Woo, big show. Really big show. And we ain't done yet. I know. <laughs> so before we move on, uh, I want to say one thing. We have merchandise available on armedforces.press. Here's my beautiful coffee cup. 
AFP armedforces.press top left corner. You can check out our merch. We just reduced prices across the board for this terrible economy. So if you want to get gains in the gym and style, check out our merch on armedforces.press up to you, Bill. Okay. So we've got a few uh, topics that I thought we, we would uh, cover while we're here. <clears throat> Let's jump into a couple of these. So, um, one is this, uh, you know, discussion on on Mike Johnson, mm -hmm. and um, you know everybody had high hopes. We we discussed it at some length in one of our previous shows, but here we are. You know, we're we're now what uh, less than a month in, and already there's danger signals cropping up. There's the comment that was made uh, very shortly after he was um, uh, in, uh, sworn into the position. Um, you know, do you, <clears throat> what are the, what do the members of the house think about, um, and what is their intention for more funding for Ukraine to the point we just got through covering? And I believe his uh, verbatim answer was, well, we all, we, we all want it. And, uh, yeah. so there, that seems to be in the offing high concern, obviously. Um, and we need to, and, and recommend our listeners keep their eyes on that. Um, Secondly, now, you know, just in the last, what, 24, 48 hours, he's come out, given everything that's come out over the last couple of months regarding Hunter, money transfers, other types of uh, valuable transfers to the family, and then consequently money is being passed along to Biden himself. Um, Johnson comes out and says, well, there's insufficient evidence at this moment to initiate uh, proceedings and then you know couches it in some language to indicate but we're you know we we know we need to look into this and by gosh we'll be looking into it and that yeah. that to me is an abortive not, not attempt good to, enough yeah. yeah not 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 good enough not candid not transparent but we don't have enough now um i i call bullshit on that one <laughs> And I think, you know, I think it's unfortunately to Laura's point earlier today, it's an indication of what we can expect. Yeah. Hope, hopefully not, but we have to be uh, legitimate about our observations and it, it's an indication of what we can expect, I think, going forward. Along with that, and I think we, we might have mentioned uh, earlier in the broadcast that, you know, there was a an indication and a vote from the House about in, in this bizarre time where, you know, inflation is such a concern and people are having trouble paying bills and, you know, we're worried about more money being given to Ukraine, yet they seem to be moving in that direction. There's a bizarre decision to fund another $300 million so that the FBI, same guys that put, you know, undercover infiltrators, if you will, in the crowd for J6, the same people that are talked about by the FBI whistleblowers like Steve Friend, uh, not looking after what they need to in terms of real security problems in the U.S., but then, you know, knocking down doors of, of um, ministers and others that are protesting against abortion. They have time for that. But they don't have time to deal with the border. They don't have time to deal with other things. And they can't find the money to do such things. But they'll fund 300 million of, uh, uh, you know, to pay for a new FBI headquarters. And two of our uh, illustrious House members from Georgia voted for it: Rich McCormick and Drew Ferguson. 
And we're not going to get out of this broadcast before we mention their names and, and ask uh, if they would like to come on and explain themselves about this decision. And we've, we've asked, already asked McCormick, uh, talk to his press secretary directly, and she said, oh, give me a call. So I tried and tried and no response. Yeah. So, Phone didn't um, ring, so it must have been them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, these are the kinds of things that, you know, in past years I would have said, you know, gosh, maybe part of the the problem that we have in the U.S. is our own doing because we didn't have eyes on. But by gosh, we got eyes on now, and folks are not going to get let go by decisions like this. So whenever they would like to ring the phone and come on, then doors open. And we would encourage people in those districts to make your voices known that uh, that's just not okay. That's, that's exactly right. And my district is one of them, by gosh. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's something odd. We we talk about every week, maybe every two weeks, about the odd things going on in this this administration, things being done that really don't they defy, in some ways, explanation. Just a few days ago, Trump's executive order one three five nine five was yet again extended by Biden for the third time. This executive order created a national emergency with respect to securities investments associated with certain companies affiliated with the military in the Republic of China. Hmm. Now, most people now, I, I think, are becoming aware that almost every company in China is somehow beholden to their military. But my question is, given Biden's stances given the concerns around who did what influence to get him into, into uh, the presidency, why would this be extended by Biden? And I yeah. can't come up with a, with a logical answer and many are confounded by the same thing. And this is not the yeah. only one. We'll remember that 13848, the um, national emergency with regard to foreign interference and sanctions thereof by um in, in and uh, uh, with regard to U.S. elections has also been extended. It was extended back in September. Why these things are happening, we don't know, but we recommend people know about them and ask themselves that same question. Great stuff. Uh, and then this is more a question for you, Todd. I mean, this is your specialty. It's a piece that you wrote. Um, tell us about this you know, the strategic default uh, article that uh, you've, you've put across CDM, if you could, and your thoughts about the underpinning of this. Yeah. So I sat on an emerging market bond desk for years and, uh, you know, we would have countries come to us and, you know, usually Latin American or Caribbean or African or something wanting to float debt, you know, sell a few hundred million bonds on the market. And, uh, we'd go to market and try to pitch it to buyers and there would be no buyers or the buyers would be, would say, okay, we'll buy them, but you got to pay us 20%, you know, some, which an outrageous interest rate, which was too, too expensive. So that it was too expensive to borrow money. So they were essentially shut out of the market. And I wrote a book when I left the street in 2011 of, called currency about that exact same thing. And by the way, the books are going to be re-released next year by history of books in April. But the, 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 the point is at some point, the bond market, which, you know, James Carville said, back in the Clinton days, if I die and get reincarnated, I want to come back as the bond market because it has all the power in the economy. And that's true because it sets interest rates based on supply and demand. And 
the view of the buyer as to can you pay the back the debt or do you have the will to pay back the debt? And at this point, we're getting to the point where America has neither the will nor the ability to pay back the debt that we are racking up you know, exponentially under this illegitimate regime and has been going on with the Bushes and Obamas and Clintons uh, for 20, 30 years. So we're at that point uh, that we will not be able to pay back this debt, at least uh, especially with the kind of leadership we have. And even if we get Trump in, it's going to be hard. We've got a, a, mil, a trillion dollars in interest rate service costs this year. So we're, we're, that's 20% of the federal budget. So we are well on our way to hyperinflation. The only way to get out of this is inflation. But we're not going to pay this back. So strategically, because China is behind much of this. They launched a bioweapon on a nation. They caused trillions of dollars of damage. They've put all this DEI or, you know, pushed all this into our schools, fitting all up the Southern border, go, immigration, go down the list, you know, gang warfare there. It's unrestricted warfare against this country that we have only recently in the last few years realized uh, and woken up to that fact. So strategic default is a way to say, well, we're not going to pay it back. You know, your trillion dollars we owe you. And this is why they're looking to get off the dollar and get into gold and, and they realize that that's coming too. And Trump has used bankruptcy effectively. I mean, bankruptcy is a tool because it's a way to shed debt and get your company healthy and uh, and continue operating. And we may be at that point for the United States. That's my point. Okay. So back to part of the conversation that echoes David's comments. You know, we mm -hmm. debt is so high that it, it really cannot be dealt with effectively. Uh, I think the debt clock's at a quarter quarter million dollars in debt for every taxpayer in the U.S. today. Yeah, and that's not it. You know, that's not even yet counting the increase in interest rates that has not fully kicked in. It's begun to, but we've got as bonds roll, they'll continue to. Uh, that, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, if we wanted when we sorry to interrupt, if we wanted to deal with our debt in the last couple of administrations when interest rates were at zero, we should have lengthened our whatever six trillion dollars. 9 trillion, 10 trillion, whatever it was, out to 100-year bonds and, and locked in zero interest rate for 100 years. But no, we kept the duration of the portfolio very short, you know, around five or less than five years. So that means we have to refinance this massive amount of debt at now interest rates significantly higher. And every point in interest rates is hundreds of billions a year in interest rate service cost, debt service costs. So uh, it, it's horrific. And, you know, this is why you have to be self-reliant because we are going to go through a massive crisis in this country. There is no avoiding it. Listen to me. There is no avoiding it. It's going to happen. It's only a question of when. So protect your family medically, food security, communications, everything, and start getting so that you can survive off, not off the grid, but off this matrix they want you to live under. Yep. That's all I got, Bill. And then in, uh, as a reminder, in coming weeks, we're going to introduce a series that will actually help people begin to, from a um, an agricultural perspective, begin to learn to have some additional layers of self-sufficiency, at least in certain areas. And we hope that people will learn from that and be able to exercise it on their own. Right. So um, very good. Thanks for Thanks for filling that in. Back to you, Todd. Well, I, I think that's it. Unless we got anything else, uh, we're a pretty long show. I think we've gone over everything. 
Well, as we come down to the last things, we'll uh, we'll have some interesting um, reports on Wednesday. I believe we're going to have General Flynn with us. Yes. Uh, on pre-tape for uh, for Wednesday, and uh, also uh, the CEO of the wellness company talking about some of the things that they can do to help people um, mitigate uh, the toxification that they may have received from certain um, injections. Yeah, the injections. <laughs> yeah, the bio injections. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to have a big show and we'll have some uh, different reporting coming in the next few weeks. We'll let you know that when that materializes. So see you Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Go to all our channels. Check out CD. Uh, it's called CDTV on the top menu at cdm.press. Check out all the different shows and uh, sign up for our Rumble channel. Sign up for all our social media so you get notified when the shows come out. If you're a military guy, you, you would love what's on there. See you Sunday or Wednesday night, Bill. Take care. See you then. All right. I forgot to pull us out there at the end. Oh, well.